like I said, it's good to be back. I'm, I'm very thankful uh, for the staff and the leadership that we have at this church and for guys that are surrounding our church that I can leave and be gone and trust it's in good hands and not have to uh, be a control freak over what happens here. And uh, I appreciate the leadership of this church and those uh, who serve so well. Uh, it is good to be back. Um, I leave tomorrow to be gone till Thursday to go to Portland uh, to run a discovery center, which is how we kind of uh, find and train and call out church planters to go plant churches. Uh, we've got about, I don't know, maybe 10 couples or so coming through. That's going to be a great time. Um, and again, it's just good. It's so good uh, for our church to have people running stuff uh, that I can be gone all week doing church planting stuff. At, at one point, we were given 40 cents on every dollar away to mission work and church planting. That's just what we do at Flipside. Uh, and so we have a chance to invest in a lot more couples uh, this week and, uh, and to set them up to go plant churches. That's who we are and what we do. And uh, it, it's good to be a part of, of that work. Uh, this last weekend, uh, Shell and I were gone watching uh, the, the celebration of two of our sons graduate college, which was exciting. My eldest son, yeah, that's good. You can clap for them. It's all right. Uh, Shell and I did it, so you're really clapping for us. Um, our eldest son served in the military and will soon be uh, graduating with his degree in disaster management, so that's going to be another celebration we'll have later this year. When Shell was in college, she graduated summa cum laude. Does everybody know what summa cum laude means? High honors. Yeah, it means smart, yeah, and so she married me, which makes sense. Uh, Caleb graduated cum laude with me in mechanical engineering. Wyatt graduated in three years cum laude in political science. I graduated college, praise the laude. Uh, just barely made it through that thing. Um, but uh, it was a great time celebrating them and uh, so proud of what God has in store for all three of our sons and, and, and the future that's ahead of them. Uh, but one thing I know, and, and if you're a parent, you get this. Parents have a tendency to be control freaks. Am I right? No. <laughs> now, it makes sense when they're toddlers. Not so much when they're in high school and really not when they're adults. But parents have a hard time letting go and not playing the role of a control freak. Because we believe that if we just get our hands on them, on it, on something, it'll go much better. Right? If it's not kids, it's something. We all believe that if I can just get my hands, if I just control some stuff. And, and, and that's not an issue for people who aren't Christ followers. But if you're a Christ follower, here's the problem. We think if we're in control, it goes better, and that's fine until it runs up against this thing called God's sovereignty. Because sovereignty means this. God's right and power to do all he decides to do. Which means if that is in play, we have very little or no control. If God has the right and power to do all God decides to do, if God decides to do something that's contrary to our control, guess who wins? Now, 
That issue of sovereignty is profound. God's right and power to do all he decides to do. To understand sovereignty, we have to understand this other word called providence. And providence means that all God does is benevolent and grace-filled. If we just talk about providence, we don't have a problem with that idea at all. All God does is benevolent, it's good, and grace-filled. Like, yeah, no, that's fine. That means that everything's going to be all right. But when we, we have to understand not just providence, but sovereignty. So if, if sovereignty means God does what he decides to do, and what God decides to do is benevolent and grace-filled, what happens when we experience what God does and it doesn't feel like benevolence and grace? Right? See, us in the Western world have a problem with that because we want it to be one or the other. Either control it and I blame you or be full of grace and give me good. But the tension is difficult for us because in our minds it has to be one or the other. The ancient Hebrew mind didn't struggle with this at all. They didn't have this tension. They understood the sovereignty, maybe not the providence so much. They really didn't have the tension. We have the tension. And it's hard for us to hold these two things in tension. What happens when God's sovereignty is on display and from our perspective, it does not go well? Every one of us starts to question his providence. And it raises the question, does God simply allow things and they just kind of play out? Or does God control all things? Profound difference. Wherever you stand on that spectrum, does God just let things, allow whatever plays out and he works it together for his good? Or does God actually control all things? Wherever you stand on that, that you're going to wrestle with where you stand. And all it's going to do is raise further questions. If you believe that God just allows whatever to happen and then works it out in the end, that's going to provide you with some questions. Why don't you step in? If you believe that God actually controls all things, that's going to raise even more questions. And they're all tied to this idea of sovereignty. Let me tell you where we're going in this series. Last week we looked at Job, that God allowed limited evil while being sovereign over it. Why? To prove to the devil the fullness of God's person and the faithfulness of God's people. We see, I see sovereignty everywhere in the Bible. Today we're going to look at this man born blind, that God actually allowed years of blindness so his sovereignty could be clearly seen. Why? To display his works and his business and how he does things. Sovereignty. We're going to look at the crucifixion of Christ. Get this, that it was God's sovereignty that allowed and actually orchestrated the affliction of his son. Why? To show the extent of his love. Profound. That the crucifixion was at the sovereign hand of God. And we're going to look at the feeding of the multitudes that Jesus knew that he was taking the people to a place of scarcity. It was his sovereign plan to take people to a place and position of scarcity. Why? To show that Jesus was in control of both creating the need and providing the solution. Think about it. If God is in sovereign control over every need you have, that's profound. 
It's awesome only when he provides the solution for it. We're going to look at, at the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea. That God showed his sovereignty in the rescue of his people and the destruction of his enemies. Why? To show that sometimes God's rescue is immediate. Sometimes God orchestrates in his sovereignty to butt up against a crisis and immediately his rescue happens. He does that sometimes. But we're also going to look at when Joshua led the nation to the crossing of the Jordan, when that Jordan River was at flood stage. Impassable. That God in his sovereignty chose the time and the location to cross the Jordan that created an impossibility that had to be overcome that they were not capable of doing. Why? To show that sometimes God's rescue takes time and we got to wait in it while we wait for it. Sometimes you just got to walk in it and you don't see it for quite a while. I see sovereignty everywhere in Scripture. And so today, this historical account about a man born blind in John 9. If you have a Bible and brought one with you, you're going to be in John 9. It's also on the screen. It's on our app. If you don't have our app, download it and follow along with all these notes. John 9, the story of this account of this man born blind, is in the Bible for one reason. Do you know why? Do you want to know Why? Because John 20 is in the Bible. John 9 is in the Bible because John 20 is in the Bible. John 20 verse 31 says this, But these things, the, all these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. We see what we see in John 9 for one reason. So that we'll know that Jesus is the Messiah of God, and believe in him, and by belief, faith, have eternal life. In John 9, we see this man who was born blind. And Jesus gives him sight. Now regarding this issue of healing, let me address this. Do you know how many healings, physical healings, were in the entire Old Testament? When you look at from Adam and Eve... Thousands of years of God's activity in the world up until Jesus. Thousands of years. How many physical healings in the Old Testament? Any Bible students? Let me tell you, seven. That's it. Physical healing in the Old Testament is extraordinarily rare. It just didn't happen. And there are three resurrections in the Old Testament. Seven healings in the physical healings in the entire Old Testament, three resurrections after over thousands of, of years, after eons. It was it just didn't happen. And then Jesus shows up in the New Testament, and there's like a miracle of healing on every page of the Gospels. It just he shows up and it just explodes. Why? Don't make me turn around and start this message all over again. For one reason, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and by belief have, by belief that is faith, have life in his name. And so this is written for our benefit. John 9. From verse 1, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. That's very important. 
his disciples, Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he's born blind? For them, there were two options. You're blind because your parents sinned or because you sinned. That's it. Anybody see a problem right there? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that sovereignty, allow or control, doesn't matter. This happened, sovereignty, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming. The lights are going to go out. No one's able to work. While I'm in the world, though, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on a man's eyes. <laughs> Be careful when you ask Jesus to heal you. He might get a little bit creative. <laughs> That's kind of nasty. <laughs> Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. That means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him beg and asked, isn't, isn't this the cat? This is a man who used to sit and beg. And some claimed that it was. And others said, no, it's not him. It just looks like him. But he said of himself, no, 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 it's me. Now there were, they said, how, how then were your eyes opened? They asked him and he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put on my eyes. <laughs> Notice what he didn't say? He doesn't know Jesus spit on the ground. <laughs> He's like, I don't know, he made some mud. It's like, <laughs> I just think it's funny. Like he's sitting there with spit in his eyes and he doesn't even know it, you know. I don't know, he made mud. Everybody else is going, oh my gosh, you don't even have any idea. Uh, he told me to go uh, to Sloma wash, so I went and I washed. And then I could see. And all those around him said, well, where is this guy? This healing is different than every other healing we see. Because in every other healing, there was a restoration of what was lost. There was a renewal. There was a bringing back to what used to be. There was a bringing back of what was lost. There was a bringing back of what had been destroyed by disease. There was a bringing back of what had once formerly was that had been sacrificed somehow. There was a restoration. This is different. Because in this miracle, Jesus is creating something that had never been. It's not that the man lost his sight and Jesus restored it. He never had it. So Jesus created it out of nothing. Showing for sure that he's in control of all things, even to the extent of creating out of nothing. This was different. See, for the disciples, the assumption was that personal suffering is always the result of personal sin. That was their assumption. That's why they asked, who sinned? He's born blind. Someone had to sin. Either him or his parents. Who was it? We saw this last week in Job. Job went through horrendous suffering, terrible suffering. Tragedy, financial, personal, family. And Job's friends came along and tried to convince him that because it was because of his sin. The interesting thing in that account is God never charged Job with any wrongdoing. But God wanted to make a point through Job 
of who God is and what God's people are like. And the interesting thing is that in Job, God gave us a whisper of the Messiah because you had this innocent man who suffered terribly, not due to his own doing. And then that innocent man was asked to intercede for those who were guilty and pray for his friends. So we had a whisper of the Messiah through this whole thing. But this idea that personal suffering is always the result of personal sin reflects a very primitive and uh, crude concept of divine justice that regards every malady as a punishment for a specific sin. And so the disciples, as according to their day, reasoned that this man's blindness must either be his own sin or his parents. Now let me just ask you, What's the problem, one of the problems in that assumption? You haven't been born. How are we going to sin? Now, it's true that some children suffer in the womb, suffer consequences for the sin of their parents. When a pregnant mom smokes, drinks, if she's beaten up by somebody, there's all kinds of reasons, and we understand the explanations, how children in the womb do suffer. Matter of fact, back in the ancient days, in the time of this, most children who were born blind was a result of gonorrhea in the mother. And now we have a lot of drugs, it's, it's curable, but back then it wasn't. And so, and so there is the idea that certainly we understand that kids in the womb do suffer for the sin of their parents. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about this generational sin of the fathers being fallen on the third and fourth generation, and that's ridiculous. That's not in the Bible. I'm just going to tell you it's not in the Bible. There's a lot of hype around that, but if you understand what the Scripture is actually saying, there's not this generational thing that Jesus doesn't break. Actually, that, that, that was a, there was a proverb in Scripture that Jesus commanded his people no longer to use. He said, I'm done with you guys blaming extra generations on your stuff. Don't say that anymore, Jesus told them. So that's what they're talking about. But how do you sin in the, how does the baby sin in the womb? You know where they got this idea? This is why you got to be careful listening to religious people. Some religious people are quacks. You got to be very careful how they and why they explain it. You know, why, you know how they got this idea that a baby sins in the womb? They go back to the Old Testament and Jacob and Esau, twin brothers, wrestled in their mother. And the, 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 the teachers, the religious teachers, that that wrestling was motivated by pride and anger and that they sinned in their mother. Can you imagine that? <laughs> it's probably just some bad pizza. I just... While there are instances in the Bible where one is struck with illness due to their personal sin, Miriam in the Old Testament struck with leprosy because of her sin against Moses, certainly she was also healed. It doesn't follow that all illness is a result of a specific sin. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, an ailment, and it wasn't because he sinned. He says it was to keep him from becoming conceited and to keep him reliant on God's grace. So all physical ailment is not a result of sin. Don't, 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 don't carry that burden. Don't carry that burden. Can you imagine if every sin of yours was met with a specific physical malady? Can you imagine how sick and miserable that's just bad theology. 
So what we're left with in this case is that it was God's plan, to sovereign plan, to either allow or control blindness to display his works. Now just put yourself in the position of this family for a moment. Imagine how much this man suffered and how much he missed out on by being born blind. Imagine his parents. Now it's been said that a parent is only as happy as their, as their least happy child. You parents understand that. So you have this child who's born with a malady that you have no answer for. Can you imagine how many prayers for healing were prayed on behalf of this boy? Can you imagine? Some of you can. How must it have felt to have every one of those prayers go unanswered by God? Some of you know how that feels. Imagine how this, these parents feel. You know as well as I do. Everything that goes wrong in your kid's life, at some point you come back to yourself. If only we would have, maybe we should have. How come we didn't? Why didn't she? Why didn't he? Can you imagine these parents? God, why our son? Why our family? Right? Like, what did we do wrong? God, why don't you do something for my baby boy? We pay our tithe. We volunteer. We do the stupid VBS thing. We believe in faith. What is God doing to these people? Right? Don't let the humanity of Scripture pass you by. Don't just get lost in its divinity. These are real people. God either allowed that or controlled that for that guy to be born blind. Let that sink in. How much did this man miss out on? Born by, never seen a sunrise. Never seen a sunset. Never seen colors. Never seen someone smile at him. We went through two years of periodic mask wearing. And people lost their minds that, oh, the children's souls bad. They can't see people smile. It was a limited time. They're going to be okay. We lost. Can you imagine a child their entire life? Never seen joy on another person's face. Imagine for a moment that that's what God allowed or controlled. In that culture, never being able to be employed. Having no possibility of marriage. Therefore, no children. And if by God's grace, he gets to get married to someone who feels sorry for him and have a baby, never being able to see their child. Imagine. Just let this sink in. We talk about God's sovereignty. This is some heavy. It, I told you, it'd be so much easier to do a message series on three steps to a happy life. That would just be simple. 
But like I said, that's not why you're here. We don't. We we got to learn to think biblically. Do you want to know how to know if whatever affliction you got, whatever you're going through, do you want to want to know how to, how to know if that's part of part of God's sovereign plan for you? Really? You want to know? Because you don't sound like it. <laughs> Go back to the Apostle Paul. I mentioned this case already. If this is in play, something else is in play. Here's how it works. Therefore, Paul says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan. Get this, the sovereignty of God. I was given a messenger of Satan to torment me, the sovereignty of God. Three times I prayed, pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Three times. Three seasons, not three prayers. Three seasons of my life. What, what, what I perceive in that is this. Like Paul, if there's no unconfessed or ongoing sin in my life, if there is, got to deal with that. That might be a culprit. But if there's no unconfessed, ongoing sin in my life, and two, if I have prayed biblically for the removal and remedy of it, and it's not been granted, if those two things are in place, that's what we see here in the Apostle Paul. You understand that? No ongoing, unconfessed sin, and praying biblically for the remedy to be rectified. If those two things are in place, and it's not granted, then verse 9 is in play. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. If there's no unconfessed sin and ongoing sin, and if I prayed biblically for relief and remedy and it has not come, then according to verse 9, I can understand that I have to have faith that what I'm going through is God's sovereign plan. And because I know it's God's sovereign plan, I will then choose to submit to him and to it. And in that submission, I will find strength by God's grace to live in it. Do you understand? This is what God's providential sovereignty means. And so Jesus says, this guy didn't sin, nor did his parents. This happened so that the works of God will be displayed in him. Jesus responded, not by denying that there are times when personal sin absolutely results in personal infirmity. There's a myriad of examples where you sow the wind and you reap the whirlwind. We understand that there are physical, financial, and relational consequences for physical, financial, relational sins. Absolutely. Jesus does not deny that fact. But Jesus affirms that that's not always the case. In this case, this man was born blind so that sovereignty... The work of God will be seen in his life. This type of thing makes us deal with this idea of sovereignty and providence. Does God allow just things to happen and then work it all out for good in the end? Or does God control all things that happen so that he, his good work will come? Allow or control. There's difficulty with each one. I mean, think about it. If God just allows stuff to happen and then works it for good at the end, why would God allow suffering just so he could show off later? Does that make sense? Not to us, it doesn't. Why not prevent the suffering and reveal what he prevented? That would be great. If you believe that God controls all things, why would God ordain pain just so he could show off? Why not show off through blessing? Right? 
See, and we have a difficulty living in this tension. But whether it's the sin of the parents or that this baby was born by, or sin in the womb, it's a very little revel, uh, uh, relevance. Because it is what it is. This kid's blind. What it became is of relevance. It happened so that this man would be the permanent revelation of who Jesus is. See, Jesus just got done saying in John 8 that he's the light of the world. He reiterates it in John 9 after this, but he professed it in John 8. And in John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And then in John 9, he gives light to darkened eyes. Here's what I know, and here's what we have to understand. When God says something about himself to you, get ready for God to prove it to you. That's how God works. And that's one reason we've got to read the Bible and know the promises of God. Because every time I read the Bible and know the promises of God, I understand who he is. And then God positions me within his sovereign will to show me exactly what he said about himself. Do you understand? So why would we not study this? Because every time we see the goodness of God, he says, okay, now I told you, now I'm going to show you. I wonder how many times we miss out on seeing it because we don't. See, when the Holy Spirit of God tells you truth of who God is from the Bible, God sets his plans to show you who God is in your life. That's why one of our, our core principles and values in this church is daily Bible read. Not so that we'll know a bunch of Bible, but so we'll know God. And when we know God, we get to see his work. And if this is the divine transaction, why would we not search the scriptures daily to know God and to know his promises? Learn them and then experience them. Any discussion of sovereignty, we've got to deal with this issue of allowing or controlling. But whatever side you stand, wherever you stand in allowing or controlling, we have to get back to where it begins. And it begins with submission. Am I going to submit to his hand? I love verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man born blind, blind from birth. Did the man see Jesus? Did the man even have any idea Jesus was close? He was clueless. He had no idea Jesus was around. He had no idea how near Jesus was because he was blind. Here's what I know. Some people who are listening to my voice right now have no idea how close Jesus is to you. Some of you are absolutely blind to one of three things. Either your own need or the proximity of Jesus or the power of Jesus. You're blind to it. The great thing of what this tells me about God is that Jesus takes the initiative when we're blind. In John 8, he just said, I am the light of the world. He said some other stuff. And then the religious rulers tried to kill him. Tried to, they put a hit out on his life. And he, in calmness, walked away from him. And walking away from an assassination attempt, he stopped. Because he knew that while he was doing the work of the Father, he was invincible. And he took the initiative. I would ask this question, is there an area of your life that you're blind in? And if you say no, then you're blind. 
I'm going to give you a chance to get some sight. I'm going to invite you to pray. And the prayer goes like this. Jesus, if there's an area of blindness in my life, give me sight to see my need, to see your proximity, and to see your power. If, if, if that's where you are, I would encourage everyone in this place to pray that. Either in the quietness of your heart or with your lips open, it don't matter for you just say, Jesus, if there's an area in my life that I'm blind to, give me sight to see my need, to see your proximity, and to see your power in my life. I don't want to stay blind. Amen. You're ready for God to start revealing stuff. Verse 6 and 7. Let me just finish this out. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud, told the guy, I'm going to put it on your eyes. I want you to go wash it off. So the man went and washed and came home seen. Usually, when we talk about sovereignty, it's always in terms of the bad. We talk about God's sovereignty. If God's sovereign, why did he allow sickness? Why did he allow disease? Why did he allow death? Why did he allow COVID? Why does he allow Newsom? I mean, there's all kinds of things that we say. If God is sovereign, why does he allow or cause all this stuff, right? But no, we're so conditioned to only see and give attention to the bad, we don't understand the full nature of sovereignty, which is also God's providence. Because the full nature of sovereignty means that his sovereignty and control is informed by his providence and his grace. See, it was by God's providence that he was born blind, and it was God's sovereignty that he was born blind, and God's sovereignty that the man was healed. Don't forget the grace side of sovereignty. And this is one reason we have to begin with submission. See, I, here's how I think it works. I think God wants to see on the front end that we're already submitted to his sovereignty before it does or doesn't work out. Whether it's good or bad. This is what we saw in the book of Job last week. Shall we not accept good from God and not trouble? Perhaps when I submit to God on the front end, God is free not only to reveal to me his sovereignty, but also to respond in his sovereignty according to his providence when I submit on the front end. Because that reveals my trust and my faith and my love for this good father. It may have been that God's sovereignty either allowed or controlled the man's blindness, but it was also that God's sovereignty resulted in his healing. Both are the same side of the coin of providential sovereignty. Verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging, isn't this the same man that used to sit and beg? When he returned home, apparently, I didn't say it outrightly, but apparently. There was such a change in his countenance. There was such a change in his being that those in his huddle, those around his life, those 8 to 15 people around his life, they didn't even recognize him. Here's what I know. 
When God, by his sovereignty, chooses to intervene, it ought to change who we are and what we look like to those on the outside. And perhaps the reason why God does not continue his sovereign, miraculous intervention is because we don't act any differently after he does. See, we want God, I want God, you want God to remove the issue and remove the pain and remove the difficulty so we can get on and live an uninterrupted life, right? Perhaps God would intervene if we would live interrupted lives. So radically changed in attitude, so profoundly changed in personality, so outrageously changed an outlook that people who used to know us don't recognize us anymore. And some of you are here are just like that. I've known some of you for years and who you are now, not who you used to be. So profoundly different that those in your huddle have a hard time with who you are and push back against it. And how they respond to you is according to who you used to be, not who you are now. There are some of you who have been so changed that there are people in your life who only knew you as who you used to be. For them, your history is greater than your destiny. Here's what I know. Never let your history outshine your destiny. You are not the same. Some of you have a much larger rear view mirror than you do a front windshield. And you're so tied to your past that you cannot see your ordained future. Some of you are so addicted to the pain and struggle of your past that you can't find joy and release in the moment. If the power of Jesus has entered your life, you are different. You might not recognize how different you actually are, but the fact is you should be different because you are different. And that's a good thing. See, while the devil cannot prevent God from doing work in your life, the devil can prevent you from realizing the work God's already done. Remember, it's the Bible that says, I make all things new. You are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Walk in the newness of what God has already done to experience the kingdom of God in your life and to realize his eternal plan for your destiny will radically change everything about us. And that's why that series we just went through was so important. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Because you are different. So much so your huddle shouldn't recognize you too much anymore. Because of those events. Isn't this the guy that used to beg? Yeah, maybe, I don't know, it just looks like him. He said, no, 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 it's, it's, it's me. How did it happen? How did you go from who you were to who you are? I know who you were. <laughs> People just don't change that much. How did that happen? I don't know, this guy made, made, called Jesus, made some mud. I don't know where he got it. Everybody <laughs> else was like, oh, brother. Told me, put on my eyes, told me to go wash. I went and washed, and I could see. All I know, 
I used to be, then there's Jesus, and now I am. I don't know how, I just know I used to be, and then there's Jesus, and now I am. And what happens when the testimony is, I used to be, and then there's Jesus, and now I am, the result of that is people ask the question, where is he? Where is he that can do this? No one can argue with your personal testimony. So perhaps God allows suffering so that we'll have the opportunity to see God's hand at work. So that we'll have a personal testimony to tell our huddle. So that they'll ask the question, where is this man Jesus? Here's my challenge. You ready? Here's my challenge. You ready? Yes. Don't ruin your opportunity to reach your huddle by grumbling, complaining, and posting your dissatisfaction about God's sovereign plan in your life. Don't ruin your opportunity to reach your huddle because of your grumbling, complaining, and posting your personal dissatisfaction about God's sovereign plan. Whether he allowed her to control it is of no relevance. The issue is our submission to it. And that's where we come back to in this, to submit to God's sovereignty. Where did that go? There it is. To submit to God's sovereignty. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Understand what this Bible verse says. That word humble means literally to assign yourself a lower rank. I know what you think you deserve. I know what I think I deserve. I know what I think my value is. You know what you think your value is. But the Bible says, whatever that is, assign yourself a lower rank than that. It's called submission. God, I think I know what ought to happen. I think I know the way it ought to be. I think I know the course of this. I think I know the solution. I think I know the remedy, God. But I'm going to assign myself a lower rank and let you be God. And the promise is in due time. That word due time means a predetermined season. Season's coming. It might not be the season yet. And until that season, we submit. This guy's season took his whole life. But it was coming. So we start with submission and we trust God's lifting. 
And the Bible says that he will lift us up, but submission must come first. This is the way it works. This is the way God works. This is the way it has always been in the scripture. How do I know? I know because the Bible says that he lifted up Moses after 40 years of submission as a sheep herder in the desert. How do I know? I know because the Bible says that he lifted up Noah after 120 years of submission in the building of a boat. How do I know? I know because the Bible says that he lifted up Joseph after years of submission in slavery and jail. How do I know? I know because the Bible says that he lifted up Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego when they submitted to a fiery furnace. How do I know? I know because the Bible says that he lifted up Daniel by submission to a lion's den. How do I know? I know because he lifted up my Jesus because he submitted to a cross. I know because the Bible says and he will lift you up one way or the other but it starts with submission. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've always loved us. Thank you that your sovereignty is informed by your providence and your goodness. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that you don't rule us as a sovereign dictator, that you're not part of some oligarch that just kind of makes puppets out of us. Thank you that you rule and allow and control, but all of that is informed by your providence, your benevolence, and your grace. Thank you. Us in this place, some of us, choose to submit. If you've never bent the knee of your heart to Jesus, in confession of faith and asking forgiveness of sin, now's your day. In the quietness of this moment, if you've never put Jesus on the throne of your heart, now's your day. Just simply say in your heart, Father, I admit I'm a sinner and I've broke your law. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. I've broken your law. Forgive me. Come into my life and make me a new creation. I submit to you. If you've prayed that prayer, our ongoing Prayer, our ongoing work of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, is the issue of submission. And so if you've already prayed that prayer of confession, now you pray that prayer of submission. Father, I like control. <laughs> you made me this way so that I will understand the profound nature of submission. As hard as it is, I choose to submit to your sovereignty and I trust your providence. I submit and I trust you to do what you said. Now lift me up in due season. Father, we have to submit to you for there is no other option. Help us not kick back against you. We love you. Help us understand how much you love us and help us love you more. In your name I pray, amen. Let's sing.